Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Br- Brooklyn, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or 1 o'clock uh, on the Heritage Radio Network. Joined, as usual, with Nastasia of the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Got Dave in the booth. What up? And we brought everybody's favorite person to beat on, <laughs> Peter Kim. <laughs> Once again, here to spread hate and vacate. <laughs> the director slash client of and and uh, short order cook, as it turns out, for the yeah, Museum of Food and Drink. Sometimes too. Nice. Oh, you guys in your freaking dishwasher. Oh my God. So, like these guys, Nastasia, right or wrong? They're like they live in that old school old school office world. It's like literally ten people working in this big kind of like law space in one space, and they still no walls, no walls, giant space, and they still have the same like weird office arguments. Like so, you think over that, email? We're uh, copied on them. Someone didn't put away their sauerkraut. <laughs> it's like you, like, you think you're trying to get away from, like, offices to get away from that. I've noticed the spoons are stacking up. And I, I'm, like, copied on these emails. And I, I'm like... Well, here's the funny like, thing, Dave. Here's the funny thing, Dave. You don't read any emails that come in, including ones that are pertinent to no, your that's business interests. That's because whenever and I yet you respond to the what you call inane dish emails, and you just send me these little needling messages, being like, like well, I mean, look, "Kill me." Period. That's the reason, folks, that I don't respond to email. If I only got three emails a day and they were important. Then I would respond to them, but instead, instead like whenever all these no, whenever I glance, I every once in a while I never answer emails. Whenever I glance at my emails, it's something <laughs> incredibly worthless, incredibly worthless. I used to have I'm terrible in meetings, people. I used to have this tactic in meetings where uh, remember this is the French culinary Anastasia I, meetings. Like people would start just saying inane things, just crazy and like wasting time, and I would just start going, and you would just start like tapping your hands on the table, and they were like, what is he doing? He's like, this is what, this is what you were doing to me. You're hurling our time into the ether. Hurling, like, I'm a firm believer, people, in never responding to emails. Now, I might take it too far, but I think everyone responds to emails too often. There's a, there's a mental cost to switching back and forth between tasks all the time. Maybe this is why people don't ever get anything done. Well, there's something called teamwork, Dave, that requires something called communication. And it either has to happen by phone, email, or in person. So you're saying... It's two different schools of thought. You're saying... Wait, wait, wait. wait. So Peter, what Peter is saying is that, that nothing ever got done before the age of email because no. there was no team building back before they had... Email conversations back they when back, back when back when everyone yes where you say you know what like you don't really need to meet every thirty seconds which is what email is an email is a meeting every thirty seconds right what you and, and it's t- totally inefficient because you're like oh my god what do they say do I have to get angry how many people do I have to cc and then you have to craft a response and then they have a response to the response and so on and so on this is how Hillary got her uh, classified email issues by the way it's oh. like eighteen levels of response I don't care it's, it's, it's the truth like these are like long email chains. And like, what's the point? Like, what's the point? Just be, especially people—they all work in the same box. Walk uh, over, emails, walk over. Emails. There's a reason for emails. They're, literally, they're, people. But the, these ones are crazy. Literally, they like. I am. I can reach over. Should I choose to? Which you know I never would. I could reach over and touch Nastasia on the shoulder. However. At MoFed, they would send an email from me to Nastasi. That's how it would freaking work. Literally, I could be staring you in the eyes and be sending you an email. Maybe they want to have it on wow, record. Wow, so much hate and... To, um, to, like, so it never happens again. The sauerkraut, yeah. the spoons, all that. Oh, I tell you. Dude, I have never worked in an office where you don't have some of that sort of day-to-day crap. I mean, you just have to. You don't, actually. Yeah, you do. You actually do not. You could choose to say, you know what, people? I am looking at my email four times a day. And that's it. Four times a day. Realize that after I respond to you, 
I'm not going to see it for another quarter of a day. That probably wouldn't cut down on the flow of useless email, though. Yeah. Uh, well, it would cut down on not the ones, not the external useless emails, but once people ne- didn't weren't in the position where they felt like they were going to get a response within ten seconds, that it wasn't going to be like billing, and you're like, oh yeah, oh wait, oh oh. You're, you're changing I, hearts and minds. Here's the other thing, dude. Have you ever like spe- this is especially true in kitchen in offices where I'm not saying that offices are bad, but in offices where like productivity is punished and it's more about like the amount of email emails you send that determine whether you're a good human being or not. In kitchens, this becomes a nightmare because you can't actually sit and have a real conversation with someone because they're constantly being interrupted by texts from, from other other venues. No one can actually – there's a huge chunk of people that just can't get anything done because they can't focus for 30 seconds to a minute and a half on the actual important crap that's being told to them live and instead are focused on freaking uh, text. Nastasia, you've seen this a million times, right? Especially when, once people are bored at work. Like once you get people who are bored at work, then all they do is focus on their texts. That's it. Yeah, so in, in your mind, there was a golden age when things got done that stopped around the 90s? <laughs> no. I'm saying, like, all these tools are great. It's just they're being used by people, uh, like, in a knucklehead way. I'm saying all these tools are useful. I'm just advocating, like I say, not being constantly plugged into something that can pull your attention. Maybe, maybe you have a job out there, people, that doesn't require you to think. But if you have to think, then being pulled from conversation to conversation every 20 seconds is, is not helpful. It's just not freaking helpful. It's like with cooking. It's like when you're cooking in a kitchen, my wife always says, why is it, you know, what is it that's like, what is it about the kitchen that, you know, you think is hard for people to get? It's hard for people to stay in the flow of the kitchen because they get bored and they get sucked out into other things and then they lose track of what they're doing, mental, you know, their mental flow of what they're doing in the kitchen. And so, yeah, they burn the sauce. They don't take the thing out of the freaking oven. They don't have the timings work out right when the stuff comes out of the oven because they're a bad cook. Well, maybe, but maybe part of the reason they're a bad cook is that they're not focusing on the flow of what happens in the kitchen. Good kitchen work is supposed to have a little bit of that in the flow, zen-like, I'm working, and this is what I'm doing. I'm not doing some other garbage, right? I'm doing this. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway, whatever. <clears throat> I had to relate it back to the cooking. So, uh, Peter, why are you here to harangue me uh, about something? <laughs> and Mason uh, accomplished, I think. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, you were going to harangue me about something. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> it's going to keep coming. Yeah. Yeah. You're not promoting anything. What? Not promoting anything. Just here to just here to needle you, man. All right. Well, like so now I'm owed some needling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I we just got back. uh, Not really. I got back at the end of last week, uh, but I haven't done the show since. From Chef Steps, first time I visited Chef Steps in Seattle. Went to uh, Jamie Boudreaux's Bar Cannon. Very, uh, very nice. Nice place. I think they might have just won some award or something. I don't know. Great bar. Uh, The most ridiculous liquor list I have ever seen. In my life, like the crazy, like they, like they can't print the liquor list because it'd be like a phone book, so it comes out in like iPad form. To give you an example, they, I don't know, I don't know, I, I, I don't really understand this, but they have a whole bunch of like uh, super, super old whiskeys, like super old, like from like the 1800s that are like fourteen hundred dollars a shot. I asked the waiter, I was like, "Is that very good? That 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 whiskey?" He was like, "No." He's like, but when someone like, you know, like some like, you know, Microsoft or some like, you know, tech dude shows up there and makes a giant deal, he's like, what do you got that's really expensive? And then once you spend $1,400 each, this guy bought uh, $2,800 worth of uh, whiskey, two shots, $2,800 worth of whiskey. Jeez. Uh, you're going to love that crap. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, that's the advantage of charging so much for something. The customer is inherently going to like it. It's because too much cognitive dissonance if you feel like, oh, that was not really exciting. Right. You would have to be so rich. Like, yeah. you, would have to be, you would have to be billionaire rich to be able to be like, you know what? I can be, uh, I can be entirely objective about this $1,400 yeah. ounce and a half pour of liquor that I just drank. Yeah, they have. So, uh, is that the place that has a giant wall of bottles? Is that it? Uh, I wasn't facing a giant wall of bottles, and I didn't look around because that's the kind of guy I am. They have really tall ceilings. I'm that guy that like walks in, sits down, and just stares down at his napkin. The you couldn't time. miss this. It was, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of a different. Right, place, Nastasia. So annoying. You Were see- you by yourself? I was not by myself. Oh, I was with good. the Chef Steps crew. Mm. Yeah, and your well, he's part of the Chef Steps crew. Your boy Michael Napkin. Oh yeah, yeah. And so the I said, "How did I said Nastasia still like. loves you?" Yeah, the only vegetarian Nastasia likes. I said, uh, "I said you're still enjoying uh, wow. his cookbook." I said, "You know, maybe he should write another yeah. another vegetarian cookbook." Yeah, right. Anyway, well, Christmas the only present. vegetarian Nastasia likes is not really that much of a distinction because there's 
how many people that she likes. Yeah, but if, if there's five people that she likes and only one of them is a vegetarian, well, I guess you're right. Like yeah. on a percentage it's not really basis. much of a, yeah. <laughs> all right, fair. Uh, <laughs> fair. So anyway, I went out to Chef Steps and demonstrated the spins all. They seem to they seem to enjoy it. Uh, did a uh, Facebook Live, which I still don't really understand. I don't either. I don't, like, I don't really understand this Facebook Live I stuff. think it's very new. Right, yeah? Peter? It's not that new. It's like six months ago. Yeah, it's very new. Yeah. Why would I want that? Because people can text in as you're doing it. Actually, that's true. People ask questions. Yeah. I ask, it is useful. It's kind of like this, but with people. <laughs> I'm just joking, people. I'm just kidding with you guys. So, uh... We did a Facebook Live about the sort of dish situation that Moff had the other day. Did you? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. All five of you chimed in? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, uh, anyway, so I, uh, during that, like, one, and I visited uh, Kenji, uh, Kenji, uh, over in San Francisco, saw his digs, uh, did the, the centrifuge demonstration for him. Here's what, by the way, we're talking about the Spinzol, which is a new centrifuge I'm selling on uh, modernistpantry.com forward slash. I'm not supposed to say forward slash, sorry. It's just slash. It's just slash. It's freaking forward slash. Back when I was a kid, when I was a boy, we had backslashes. We had forward slashes. Now it's just slash. So uh, modernistpantry.com slash uh, Spinzol. Uh, we got to sell, uh, frankly, we got to sell more of these freaking centrifuges people. I think there's a lot of people out there don't know why they would, I mean, not you people, if you're listening to this, right? I mean, you know why you want a centrifuge. But I think a lot of people just don't get why they would want a centrifuge. They only think of these modernist kind of techniques. And I'm like, just like being able to make strawberry juice all day, all night is like enough for me or banana hustino or any one Would of the. Would you get one, Peter? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like exponentially cheaper than any other alternative or something like that. Hey, Dave, right. we actually got a question about the spins all in the oh. chat room. Oh, what do you got? They want to know what would happen if you put molasses in it. Uh, molasses is pretty much a solution. So I don't think it would do much to it. Um, so that's another thing. Is like most people, uh, what I realize is, is that I've used a centrifuge for so many freaking years that like I, um, I kind of know what a centrifuge is going to do and what it's not going to do. But when Kenji said, what should I spin in this? And we, there was a bunch of responses to him about what we should try to spin in the centrifuge. I kind of realized that people don't really understand what a centrifuge at this kind of um, – level is for like for instance it's not for clearing uh meat stocks although i'm trying to think of a way to do it um it's it's not for that it's uh you know if you take uh milk if you take milk with cream yeah i can you know unhomogenized i can separate it out but uh and if you take cream i can make uh butter uh but like molasses like i say is a solution there might be some crap floating in the molasses that i can get out but i'll give you some examples of stuff to do uh like Mm, let's see, with some sugar stuff. So I did a uh, – someone wanted me to do chocolate milk, and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to get a lot out of that. So I wanted to do – I did chocolate cream. I made like a cocoa cream and then uh, with some sugar in it, and then I spun it hoping to get cocoa butter. Not cocoa butter, but cho- chocolate butter. You know what I mean? And uh, what happened was I got an amazing – I got a triple separation. So I got like a chocolate buttermilk, which I used to make pancakes. It was very good. Then I got a very light chocolate butter because basically the only chocolate that was in it was in the whey that was in it. And then I got a hyper smooth kind of like cocoa paste like Nutella but totally smooth and liquid, which was pretty awesome as well because it had been totally hydrated. Uh, And uh, I ended up mixing those back together to make like a chocolate butter, but like a chocolate compound butter. It was really good. So you can do that kind of stuff or like uh, Greek yogurt. Like I could take yogurt. I can remove some of the whey. Then you do that, you know – and you get like a – you can either do Greek yogurt or like a yogurt cheese, which I made. So it does that on that kind of dairy, but it's not – it's or for like clarifying juices, but it's not for like breaking stocks. It's not going to take things that are – that don't ever naturally settle or break on their own and make them break. You know, It will spin blood down. I'm told it will spin blood down because it's at the same speed. I got a lot of people asking me about that. I guess to fortify blood sausages uh, or whatever and that, that will work. But anyway – Here's a question for you, man. When was the last time there was a sort of previously inaccessible technology because of the price point that, like, seriously dropped like this? The circulator went from about uh, $2,000. The emergent circulator went from about $2,000 in 2002 to about $800 in 2005, Uh, mostly as a result uh, Philip Preston um, just wanted more chefs to have them, and so the price got 
dropped because when only labs were buying it, labs are a relatively inelastic uh, market. They're just going to pay whatever you ask. Um, and so when the chef market kind of got big, you know, Philip knew the price needed to drop. So that was kind of the first big price drop. $800 is still relatively expensive, but that was the kind of the first explosion in into the market. And that's kind of, you know, I'm taking a bigger price jump there with the Spinzol. So I'm going from a eight to $10,000 machine down to like a $1,000 machine. So I'm trying to hit some of those early adopters who would have gotten an immersion circulator back in the $800 days. Um, then we pop soupy pot, bam, uh, who was one of my interns, came out with uh, the Nomaku, and the Nomaku was, to my knowledge, uh, the first commercially available sub five hundred dollar uh, circulator, and then I think it came in at like th- three hundred and something originally, and then Philip came out with one, and then you know a whole host of others have really driven the circulator market way down. Until now, it's hard to get someone to pay more than two hundred and fifty dollars for uh, a circulator, and then you have people adding like Chef Steps with Jewel has added uh, the app and the Wi-Fi capability, and so that market is really. Expanding, I mean, that's the one. That's where a previously inaccessible thing has really gotten into into kitchens. Uh, Because the the reason it doesn't happen very often is that there's not many technologies that are taken from other realms that have, like, instant and obvious kitchen applications. Um, Like, the you know, Blender was – like, they have laboratory blenders, but, like, the Blender was intended to be a piece of kitchen equipment. Um, So – you know, and other things are always going to be inaccessible, like puffing guns or like uh, extruders or you know pasta extruders and things like this. Although pasta extruders are becoming more popular, but they're at like the three and four thousand dollar level. So it, it, it's it's there aren't going to be that many uh, there aren't that many things that. I've experimented with where I'm like, yeah, that needs to be really popular. Uh, immersion circulator was once. So people used to say, which one of these technologies is really going to make a big deal? They asked me back in oh, you know, oh four, and I and I was like, oh, the immersion circulator, clearly, you know, and it's one of the very few things I've been right about, you know, uh, in terms of uh, future predictions. Um, and so, uh, and the other one that I've always wanted, I want if I want a rotovap to be more uh, accessible to people, but the f- but the reason I'm not building a rotovap is that although we could make a more accessible rotor app. It still is not going to have the wide range of use for people that um, a centrifuge would, just because it's always going to, no matter how uh, you know cheap I make a rotor app, no matter how breakproof I make a rotor app, no matter how bulletproof it is, it's always going to take like a lot of skill to operate one well, and it's going to take uh, a, like a fairly steep learning curve. Whereas with a centrifuge, once you learn how to use it, you're just pumping product out. And so, um, yeah, and also like a rotovap, no matter what, is going to require chilling. So you're either going to have to bust through a bunch of ice or you're going to have to bust through, uh, you know, buy a chiller. It, you know, it needs heat, needs all this, needs all this ancillary stuff, like a lot of power. And so... Um, yeah, I, you know, I always thought the centrifuge is the item that should be available in the kitchen, but what it really needed is someone to design one for the kitchen. Um, anyways, but we're not selling enough of them, so if you actually ever want there to be a culinary centrifuge, and who knows, maybe in you know 10 years if the market – or five, six years if the market opens up more, maybe there will eventually be a $300 centrifuge. Who knows? You know what I mean? Or you know, a $200 centrifuge. But um, we're just – Nastasi and I simply – aren't making enough of them. Well, right now we're making zero because we haven't been able to pay for the tooling or the or the production run. But, uh, yeah, if you don't buy it, we won't make it. And uh, if I may, I will say that uh, I have the uh, luck slash uh, misfortune of working with you about as much as anybody else. <laughs> but I will say that, uh, yeah, I mean, I can vouch for the fact that uh, Dave puts a ridiculous amount of time and thought into this thing. So um, if there's anybody who could do it, I mean, really. This is the only yeah. product I really like. Yeah. Really? That's because mm-hmm. also you hate having to run the normal centrifuge, too. It's big. It's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the the lit, like I'm very thankful that this is not on the list of things Nastasia will never touch again because the list grows every every day. Um, so uh, not about my centrifuge, but uh, so because I'm working on the centrifuge, I'm getting a lot of uh, tweets in about this coffee machine. Have you heard of it? Spin, Mm-mm. spin. And so it's a centrifugal coffee machine. It's actually something I've been interested in. So what Spin does is uh, they don't show you the inner workings or the guts of it. But what what it is is it's got a bunch of like you know application hoo ha attached to it. Uh, you know you can like make a coffee while you're on the road so that by the time you get home it's cold and ruined. If that's what you want to do, I'm kidding. But uh, or you can wake up and you you can tell Alexa. Is it it's Alexa or Lexis? What's the name of that? Alexa. 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 Yeah. 
Is that a real human name, or is it named that because it's not a real human name? I don't know. Anyway, Alexa, brew me some coffee. And so the spin, like, will listen. The Alexa will tell the spin. I saw Kenji, by the way, turn on his emergency circulator like that. He was like, Alexa. He was like, Alexa. He doesn't talk like that. He's like, Alexa. Turn on my jewel, and like, and the jewel like turned on and started running. He doesn't talk like that at Wait, all. Wait, so it's it's connected to every single appliance with what Bluetooth? I think it can. I think Alexa's just on your network, and so it can probably do a Bluetooth enabled device or a wired wireless device or even a wired device. I think it's just a question of I don't know how it works to be honest. But anyway, well, so hopefully there aren't that many people named Alexa. I don't have one. Yeah, you remember uh, yeah, the Wizard I, of Oz? Posed, yeah. Remember the Wizard of Oz? Mm. Like when he's like taking off and like Toto jumps and she goes out to get Toto, and they're like, "Come back!" He's like, "I can't. I don't know how it works." Remember that? That's like one of my favorite like Wizard of Oz lines, but. Uh, I don't know where I got in that. So anyway, so people ask me about this spin. So what it does is it grinds uh, whole beans and then presumably puts the be- – presumably because I don't know – puts it into, the, into a basket, dry, spins it up, thereby like evening and like you know pseudo tamping the coffee grounds down and then introduces the hot liquid to the basket while it's spinning and then gener- because of the force – uh, the theory is it generates the equivalent of a certain amount of pressure. So by altering the speed at which the basket rotates, it can produce something that is espresso-like or drip coffee-like. Uh, now, a lot of people on the Internet are like, that won't work. And, and people have asked me, do you think that will work? And the truth is I have no way to know because I haven't tested it, right? So – I will say that there is no way I believe it's going to produce something exactly like espresso, and here's why. When you were, when you were making a puck, an espresso puck, right, you're basically you're trying to create a hydraulic puck that uh, it, you know, compresses extremely evenly. You then saturate that puck. The puck kind of uh, inflates, and as you force water through it, the fines migrate to the bottom, uh, increasing theoretically, I guess, the hydraulic pressure, but at the same time, you're decreasing the amount of solids left, so your, your uh, rate of water goes through uh, faster. Anyway... It's like that. When you are spinning a basket and letting the water in at the same speed, your compacting pressure is the same as your theoretical liquid pressure walking through. Now, an espresso puck, clearly you're tamping with much less force than you are putting water through. So it's the equivalent of like maybe 20 pounds of force over the entire uh, disc of coffee puck versus 150 PSI uh, you know, of the water pressure coming into it. So clearly there's um, a differential there that you can play with with espresso that you're not going to be able to play with uh, with the spin. Um, the other thing is – I mean that's, that's kind of the, the main thing. I mean I, so it's going to be different. Also in, in espresso, as soon as the pressure is released, it stops. This is actually going to pull more stuff out of the coffee grounds uh, because of the centrifugal force than you would get uh, if you um, just forced water under pressure. It's a different kind of a situation. Now, I did just as a test take some espresso grinds, mix them with hot water, spin them in the centrifuge for 30 seconds. I got – or a minute. I got all of the – grounds back out I tasted the coffee it tasted fine because I wasn't pushing it through I didn't get any aeration and so I didn't have any of the body that you would have in a normal espresso cup it had some of the espresso flavors that you would normally have and it had zero grinds in it because you know I was able to spin it fast enough but I mean I, the answer is I don't know I'm willing to ha- test out a spin machine if someone wants us to test it out but I don't know I mean it could be a way to do individual servings well as opposed to like those cups I've never had a cup based machine that I thought was the greatest thing on earth you ever had a cup? The worst. The worst. Not just bad, the worst. See, a lot of times, uh, Peter, what people are focusing on when they're making those single service things is, is this, and this is a, like not the way I focus in life, but this is a valid thing. Is this single serving better than what the average Jokomo will make given a system that they have to control? So if you're dealing with like the EC pods, for instance, the question is, is this EC pod as good as the greatest espresso that you can make? No. Even the guys at, uh, at uh, um, uh, sorry, Ely. I, I, I'm going to say Ely all the time. Ely. Uh, is the Ely pod as good as the best espresso someone can make? No, it is not. And they will admit that. But is it better than what 90% of the people will make? Yeah. And so if you're one of those 90% of the people that's going to make a garbage espresso, then the uh, Ely pod is a good solution for you, except for the sustainability and the fact that you're hurling all this plastic into the ether. And the spin, theoretically, if you like the coffee it made, is going from bean to bean to cup. So it's not going to have any of those sustainability issues. 
The the Breville, by the way, makes the with the automatic grinding stuff, which I was very dubious of. Does make a cup better than about ninety what ninety percent of people would do. I just think there are so many easy ways to make good coffee that okay, maybe not espresso, but like I don't see why you'd want to use one of those machines. I don't like the word pour over. No. No. Right. What about an Aeropress? And say it with an Australian accent. I can't. Can you? No. You hate you. You have an anti-Australian accent thing. Though, yeah. Right? What about Olivia Newton-John's old accent? She's okay. Yeah. I have to say, gooseneck things annoy me. What? Gooseneck? <laughs> like that when mean? someone says a gooseneck? It just seems really precious when you're pouring the water over the pour-over. I understand. Oh, 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 I also oh, oh. hate I precious. Why, does, why do people say precious all the time? But well, because Peter well, used to work moment. for Precious Moments. <laughs> precious <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, uh, there's the, 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 the greatest <laughs> moment in my life is when uh, Peter brought a picture of, of himself in like a, a Precious Moments like furry outfit, and it was not for some sort of cosplay thing. It was his parents made him dress up <laughs> For the Hallmark store that where they used to work. Uh, anyway. Okay. Brandon wrote in about carbonation. Hey, Bushwick crew. I'm trying to rebuild my carbonation rig with interchangeable adapters. One adapter for the liquid bread carbonator cap, which is the carbonator cap of choice, people. Uh, and one for a direct injection into an easy whipper, into the whipped cream whipper, I hope, because I don't really like the, the soda ones. For uh, the Really just all you need is the whipped cream one. Uh I have not had any luck getting direct injection from CO tank to work a uh, CO2 tank to work properly. I've tried pressing a small barbed fitting around the uh, EC puncture valve, and some CO2 gets in, but not much. Does this uh, EC puncture valve have to be pressed down for proper airflow? Would love any suggestions on how to get this working. Thanks, Brandon. Okay, Brandon, you're in a little bit of a pickle here. Here's why: uh, you do not need to press on that valve to get it to work. However, when ever when you're putting a uh, a cartridge onto that thing, what happens is the cartridge gets punctured, pushes against that rubber, rubber grommet, and is injected into the EC under high pressure. Because remember, that cartridge contains uh, uh, either nitrous or CO2 uh, at a normal uh, at, you know, temperature in the atmosphere of roughly 800 PSI. So it's shooting in there, and it's shooting in a, uh, a particular weight of CO2 or of nitrous, a weight, not a pressure. And so because of that, the check valve doesn't have to be have a particularly low what they call cracking pressure. And so there's a good 5 PSI. I haven't measured it in many years, but it's a good 5 PSI of overpressure uh, required to get any flow at all uh, through um, that EC valve. Uh, what, what I used to do in the day was uh, I would build an adapter that actually had the, you, you, the cheapest, easiest way to do it if you don't have access to a machine shop or anything like that is to um, take your your barb thing, push it uh, against the thing gently, then uh, screw, like put some release agent. Please put a, a boat ton of release agent. Like do not allow epoxy to get onto your actual EC uh, whipper. Cut off, um, you know, so I'm talking about the thing that you screw the chargers on with. Cut that off and then embed the thing, uh, embed your, your barb fitting and all that into it and seal the top with epoxy. This way, when you screw it down tight, you have a fitting that can screw and unscrew onto it easily. But it's never going to be ideal because of the pressure drop you're getting across that. So if you're trying to set your tank to have the correct pressure for carbonation with uh, a normal carbonator cap, which is a free flow situation, you're never going to get the same amount when you have to force it through a um, through that check valve. And that's going to become even more apparent when uh, you're trying to shake and get that last little bit of carbonation in because right there, you're driving carbonation in under what is essentially equilibrium pressure. So it's difficult. Uh, the way that I did it when I really wanted to carbonate in uh, EC bottles uh, from a tank, and I did because when I opened Booker and Dax uh, originally, that's how I thought I was going to do it. I... Uh, I took uh, I made a I took an, an old EC uh, whipper head. You can get them on eBay real cheap. That are plastic. They used to make plastic whipper heads for their non-commercial for their home line. But the, the screw threads are the same. I then cut everything off of that thing that I wanted. Um, and I bought like a, you know screw-in valves. I tapped. I, I put um, basically bondo on it tapped it with a, a drill and a tap and then I cast it in uh, I cast it first in silicone to make a mold and then did a bunch of food grade polyurethane casts to make a bunch of carbonation heads that fit directly onto uh, an EC uh, whipper they used EC brand uh, gasket seals etc etc and that's actually what I was going to use to open the bar with but you know it takes a little bit of work but I mean okay it takes a lot of work but if you're going to do it for a living it's and you really want to do it it's worthwhile anyway uh, did I answer that question or not? Yes. Yes. 
Uh, Julian writes in about sous vide sauce. Hey, all. I'm writing to ask about making sauces with the liquid left in low temperature uh, sous vide bags. I'd like to use this to make a simple pan sauce just mixed with uh, stock or red wine. But the delicious sous vide liquid quickly curdles whenever I heat it further to reduce it, leaving my reductions with weird textures. It's beyond weird. It's freaking gross. It looks like, well, we'll get into it in a second. It uh, is my best bet to curdle it and strain out the curds. Yes. <laughs> that was easy. Um, but why don't you take another ten minutes to answer the question? Yeah, is there some way I can prevent the? <laughs> is there some way I can prevent the protein from curdling, or at least get some flavor out of it? Thanks for any tips, Julian. I don't know actually. Um, that you, not any tips to prevent the curdling that you would really want to do. Like you could probably very heavily salt it or very heavily sugar it. But yeah, the way to do it is to as soon as it comes out, just break it really quickly and then uh, strain it. And like it, it's just it's just uh, protein that's in solution. And um, it's never been raised to a temperature that makes it um, that makes it curdle, and so it comes out, and that's it. Um, you know, the same way that if you cook a, a fish too high, like uh, that liquid will come to the top, and then once the heat hits it, it goes white, it turns white. It's that same sort of stuff. It's the stuff that when you start heating, floats up to the top uh, as pond scum when you're cooking meats, and you got to get rid of it. AKA family meal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, family meal. Well, you know that story that Alex Warner Shelley tells, right? Yes. Eating the raft. Ugh. I think about it. I look at it like eating the raft. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so the the quickest, easiest way around it is to just heat it and then strain it. And as a side note, uh, a lot of times when you do that, the liquid will uh, actually self-clarify because uh, the proteins, as they coagulate, will hold on to some of the um, cloudy bits. Speaking of self-clarify, did I talk about self-clarifying cordials? Yes. Oh, all right. Um, there you go. Don't need to talk about it again. Done. Uh, so there you have it. Now, the problem with that, of course, is you're going to lose some of the product when it curdles. There's not a lot left. So um, I don't know whether you want to add some product to it, then curdle it, then strain it. We should take a break. Take a break? Yeah. Take a break and come right back with cooking issues? Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. We are back. Uh, so Christmas tree farms. Nastasia, do you know how uh, long it takes to grow a Christmas tree? No. Seven years. Really? Yeah, it's about seven years. At least so I'm told. In seven. Oregon, I know a guy who's a Christmas tree farmer in Oregon, and he was like, yeah, it's about seven years for the trees to get fully mature. I have to say, it always weirds me out to see right after Christmas how everybody just chucks their trees. Yeah, so what are they going to do with it? First of all, I know. Uh, first of all, I, I, you know, I wish we had the Christmas tree farmers in New York here because you are providing jobs for someone. Yeah, sure, I get you it. don't mind wiping your butt with paper and flushing it down the toilet. Instead, you get Whoa, enjoyment hey. from a tree. It makes your whole house smell nice. It provides jobs. It's like a low impact uh, farming that you can do on, on a chunk of land. Did you get one? Was it a tree? No. Did you get one from New York State? I don't. I don't have a tree. Why do you not have a tree? I have a I saw a hipster walking down a tree with something that looks theoretically nice, but is not. Here's what uh. they did: they had a big piece of tree that they cut a disc out of. They drilled a hole in the center. Then they took their Charlie Brown tree, right, and they shaved off the bottom of the trunk like a cork, so it would fit into the hole in the tree. But this is a far cry from the old time. Old time, you had that little wooden cross. Mm-hmm. And you nailed it from underneath. Now, that's okay because you're not shaving off all of the xylem. How the hell is this little tree supposed to drink if you shave off 
all of its xylem. Sad. Sad. So sad. So hipster. It's such a hipster thing. I'm gonna have something that looks like all old school. But like it's like it's like I'm. It's more dead than dead. It's not. See, a, a, a tree is basically a cut flower. I mean, like you know what I mean. You have to treat it like a cut flower. And would you sit there? Would someone hand you cut flowers? Would you be like, oh, thanks, and then take the stem and crush it between De- your fingers? Depends. Depends on. I know you're yeah. a, you're the master of uh, what's <laughs> yeah. the book, Nastasia? Uh, the the Grand We flower decorating book. Nastasia is a firm believer. If she hates almost everybody, have you ever been to the restaurant? Yeah. Was Once, it was a long it good? time ago? It was a good, yeah. But anyway, they're flower decorating at, at yeah, uh, Le Grand. Is it Le French. or La Grand We? La. La. Frogs are feminine. Yes. Okay. So it's uh, La Grenouille. Apparently, they have like one of the greatest. Okay. Do say it. Say it. Accent. La Grenouille. Or now say it. Now say it with uh, African French accent. Oh, jeez. Do it. No. You're the one that made me do it. Oh my god. You're not bringing me into. That's where you learned French. Yeah, I know. So you. What? That's not funny. That's that's not funny. That's true. He learned French initially with an African accent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. How does that sound? Well, you just instead of the huh, you do a, a rolled R instead. Anyway, Dave's just waiting, expecting. He's not going to do it. Peter's not going to do it. He does a good. He does a good accent. Anyway, yeah. but the uh, what were we talking about? So flower decorating. That's like that's you actually like pinnacle. That. Yeah, but it's it, it treats every different flower in a different way. The way it's supposed to be treated when anyway, it's cut. Yes, mm-hmm. back to Christmas tree farms. Do you remember the first one of the last things we did? The first things we did for Booker and Dax. One of the last things we did was Nastasia and I at the French Culinary. Nastasia, I went down and got a Christmas tree, and they're like, "This one looks better." We're like, "Don't care, don't care." We're just smelling the Christmas trees to figure out which one we like yeah. the smell of. Took it back up to the French Culinary Institute and then completely denuded it of uh, of needles. We just took the Christmas tree and just instantly stripped all the new- needles off of it. And people were like, "What are you doing? What are you doing? Shut up!" And then we like distilled the entire tree. Yeah, we sat there and distilled the entire tree. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Through a rotovap, mm-hmm. and then we made like fifteen hundred pine drinks for MTV. Remember that? Oh yeah, it was like MTV, and we did all of those pine things. And that's actually where I was using those that's EC you bottles were so that I made. So angry at that event, I don't remember why. No, I wasn't. That was the one where I, I didn't even. Angry at an event? No, I, that, no, that's no, that's the event where. Remember, all I did was shake. We had it was one fun. We had one we person who batched. One person who I sh- uh, who added ice to the uh, ECs. I shook all night long, and another person had poured because we were just there was just boom, 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 and we were carbonating all the minute. Remember that? Fifteen hundred drinks, ridiculous. Fifteen hundred people. God knows how many drinks. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas trees, fun. Uh, so our auction went for two thousand five hundred fifty dollars. Oh, nice. Good. That is very nice. Uh, who, do we, uh, we're not going to call out who, who bought it, but uh, we uh, eagerly wait you coming and sitting down and cooking. Remember, though, when you show up at cooking issues, you're going to get dragged into the conversation. It's just the way it works. Yeah. And also, dragged big, through the mud. Well, no, I mean we're we're nice to guests, I think, except Peter. Uh, <laughs> and we also like to uh, thank during the fundraising drive these people for supporting Heritage Radio Network uh, on behalf of Cooking Issues Program. Peter, Grego, Carlos, Zachary, Thomas, <laughs> Tad, Co. Oh. Like him. Remember, he bought us the Modernist Cuisine book. Uh, he's down in, where is he, Texas? Texas, I think. Uh, Nick and Mark. Anyway, thanks so much, folks, for uh, supporting uh, Cooking Issues and the Heritage Radio Network. Um, next, we got uh, Matt uh, Cholik writes in from Seattle. Dear Nastasia and Dave, uh, thanks for the show. My question covers cocktails. Acidic things like lime juice, orange juice, and even some sodas tend to really upset my stomach. I'm a big fan of margaritas, though. I mean, who isn't, really? Margaritas are delicious. I mean, as long as you drink alcohol, margaritas are delicious. Do you like margaritas, Peter? Love margaritas. Nastasia? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what do you suggest... My question has uh, three parts. What do you suggest I use to bring lime juice's pH up to seven so I can see what cocktails taste like with lime flavor but without the sour? Baking soda comes to mind, but I suspect that will compromise the drink's flavor. It will, and by the way, you're never going to get it all the way up to seven, I don't think. Uh, I'm guessing sour is pretty essential to the drink's taste, but only loosely correlated with the actual acidity, uh, such that there are substances uh, uh, such that there are substances packing equivalent sourness to lime juice that leave a drink's uh, pH closer to neutral. Any thoughts or some options? And finally, do you have any ideas for a solid lemon lime juice substitution that I could request at a bar? Asking for a margarita shaken with an antacid uh, tablet seems unworkable for multiple reasons. I tried my, uh, making myself just a Cointreau tequila and simple syrup uh, drink, but it wasn't particularly good. No, I don't imagine that it would be. Uh, remember, if you are going to reduce the acid, you have to also uh, reduce the sugar by a lot, lot. And if you're going to make low acid drinks in general, this is not answering your question, but I, I, which I will answer in, in, in a minute. But 
when you're making a drink that doesn't have any acid in it, like an old-fashioned, like typically to add brightness to an old-fashioned, uh, and first of all, remember, it has a minimal amount of sugar. So a two-ounce pour in an old-fashioned is not very diluted and has about a quarter of an ounce to three-eighths of an ounce of normal a 50% simple syrup in it. Um, to add brightness to that, a twist. And the, uh, a scent, uh, the essential oil from like either a grapefruit or, or a lemon or an orange or sometimes a lime, although I'm not a huge fan most of the time of lime twists, uh, that uh, fresh, bright, inherently cit- citrus note of those oils gives you a sense of freshness, which is part of what acidity brings is a freshness. So you should always start by, uh, if you're going to reduce the acid, if not eliminate the acid, adding uh, twists to things because that's going to help uh, punch up the brightness. Uh, also, reducing sugar content substantially uh, is going to allow you to use less uh, acid. A high, anytime you have a high sugar content, you're going to require more acid uh, to balance it out. So if you were allowed to have minimal amounts of acid, like they're in sodas, like you say, you might want to switch to carbonated margaritas because carbonated margaritas have less sugar, uh, more water, but less sugar overall and also less acid, uh, and they're delicious. Um, but what uh, I would not do baking soda because uh, it's going to make it salty and weird. I would actually try – I was going to try it myself, uh, but I don't have any left at the house, sodium citrate. So sodium citrate is uh, a, a salt of citric acid, but it acts as a buffer. And I, I did some basic calculations. So the classic margarita spec that we use – uh, has in it about uh, it is about 172 milliliters after it's been shaken and strained and contains about 1.34 grams of uh, acid as citric. It's actually a mix of citric and malic. Uh, and that ends up being a molarity of 0.04% uh, and a titratable uh, acidity of uh, roughly 0.78. Orange juice, on the other hand, uh, has an acidity of 0.8, of titratable acidity of 0.8. Now, uh, I test it uh, – if you go on the online and you look up um, the uh, pH of uh, something that has a, a citric acid with a molarity of 0.04, uh, you get a pH of 2.29. However, orange juice, which has a very, very similar titratable acidity, very simple, similar molarity, has a pH of 3.3 to uh, f- almost up to 4. And the reason the pH is higher is because not all of that citric acid is going to um, uh, you know, uh, deprotonate. It's not going to uh, – uh, the word's not coming to my mind. It's not going to turn to acid there. It's not going to actually reduce the pH uh, as much. Um, but anyway, so what you're looking at with a margarita is basically the acidity of orange juice. And so I would just test with orange juice because it's a lot cheaper to test orange juice than otherwise. And I would add to uh, your orange juice for every like 172 grams of um of uh, of orange juice, if you add about a gram and a half of sodium citrate, you might increase the sourness, but you're definitely going to also increase the pH. You might be able to knock it up like like a whole point, which is a log level, ten times ten times less uh, um, acidity. Uh, now, you said that I should recommend a pH uh, meter to you uh, so that you can get one. I don't use them in the bar because it. I care only about the taste, which is correlated more to titratable acidity and less to pH. But for your case, where you're actually trying to reduce the actual acidity, you get a pH meter. Go ahead and get one. If, it, if me telling you to get one helps you get one, get one. Uh, the one I use is uh, the Xtech. Uh, I pH meter is a little bit of a pain in the butt because you have to um, change out the sensors, and once the sensors dry out, they kind of lose their efficacy. Uh, there are some cheaper ones out there now on Amazon that I don't have any experience with. The X-Tech is not that much more expensive, and I know it works. So anyway, there you go. Hey, we got a caller on the line. What Ca- about essential oils? Oh, never mind. Central oil? Well, it's like the same. Twists. Yeah. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah. Um, my name is Marlene. I'm calling from Brooklyn. Uh, I actually was at Auto a couple weeks ago, and you made me two great Italiano Stallianos, so thanks. Um, But I had a question about food mills, which you were complaining about last week. Um, So for the holidays, my family makes homemade applesauce, um, and we, like, cook down the apples and then throw them in the food mill, skins on. Um, But it's a pain in the ass because the skins get stuck under that crank. Right. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about other ways to, to make applesauce. Well, that's a good question. And so I just did some – this is kind of like related to what you were saying. I just did some experiments uh, with um, tomato juice and spinning tomato juice to get the paste out of it. And we had this argument with Mark Ladner about food mills and the way he does tomatoes. And it is true that 
uh, tomato done through some form of um, strainer like that is better. The tomato paste was so much better, and the juice was so much better. I'm sure with applesauce, it's so much better. I don't know of a good – I mean, you could pass it through a Tammy, but that's also a pain in the butt. I mean, I, I, mean, I, could, I would just try passing it through a Tammy. Um, do you have a, you know you can get a big Tammy for pretty cheap, and then just a plastic scraper, and it's got such a larger surface area. I mean, how much applesauce are we talking about? We make like uh, maybe like a gallon, gallon and a half, so not like a ton. Oh yeah, get a big salad bowl and a big Tammy, and then just pass it through with a spatula because you're you're basically doing that with a food mill anyway. Like let's not right. like, pretend that a food mill is anything worse than an in a, better than an ineffective scraper on a, on a really crappy Tammy that's hard to like open up and clean. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. I would go Tammy on that now. Uh, what I would like to experiment with, but I haven't, is there's a bunch of hand crank um, uh, tomato strainers that are meant for like you know old grandma sauce, right? Now I don't know whether they're any good or not. KitchenAid makes a tomato strainer attachment for people that make a lot of tomato sauce. It might also work for uh, applesauce. I don't know. You know, it's designed to let through enough pulp to have like a bodied thing, but to exclude the the larger things. So it's not going to be as fine a grain as something like a you know champion, which lets very little through, uh, or even like the Breville juicer, which lets lets slightly more pulp through. But it's it's a strainer. It's meant to let the you know most of the particulate through, but exclude like seeds and skins and stuff like that. So I would try also. I would I would look into whether they're uh, reasonably priced to try. But for a gallon, yeah, and you're not gonna. No one's ever said, oh, I wish I didn't have this Tammy when it comes time to also sit flowers. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah. Whereas I've heard everyone be like, I wish I didn't have this freaking food mill because now I feel obliged <laughs> to use it and it was too expensive to throw away and that's wasteful and I feel like a bad human, right? I, there's nothing but regrets in food mill land. <laughs> they're pretty cheap on Amazon now. What is, food mills? Yeah. They're the never cheap. One. Think of your labor. Think of your labor. Value your time. Food mills are garbage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let us know. Uh, Tweet us back or whatever. Let us know how it works. All right, thanks so much. Oh, thanks. Uh, Oh, you too. Uh, I had a a Twitter question in on grinding spices. Someone wants to know, how do I grind small amounts of spices? Because, you know, they use the Whirly Blade blade spice grinder, like the one that we have, Uh, to grind. And uh, you're going to say. What? Marijuana thing. No, I'm actually not because those are those are good to carry around in your knife kit if you need to grind something on a on quickly. That's what I use the marijuana grinder for for grinding spice, uh, you know, that you can carry in your knife kit. But at home, mortar and pestle, man, mortar and pestle is the way to go. I think everyone forgets, like you know, in this era of high tech everything, that a mortar and pestle can take down like a single clove into a fine powder that you can put into anything that you want. And so I don't I, – like it is a pain in the butt to use a mortar and pestle on really large quantities of things because things kind of slide and pop around and stuff like that. But if you can take a small amount of spice and just go with the, with the mortar and smash it into a million pieces, right, that's the way to go. And stop using email. I wasn't on email. I didn't <laughs> – well – None of that you high-tech should, gadgetry bring out the mortar and pestle. You should smash your phone with the mortar and pestle. Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren writes in about Martini Madness. Hello, it's Darren. The bartenders where I work uh, were recently given a little speech uh, about and a push to win a competition called Martini Madness in the Sonoma Valley. And although I have nothing to do with it, being a line monkey, I have a few questions regarding the subject. The only two rules um, – Oh, my phone just decided not to... Okay. The only two rules uh, are that it's made with an olive and also that it uses Prohibition brand spirits, which is a company based out of the area. Uh, Anywho, I thought long and hard on the olive and the drunkenness responsibly and came up with an idea which requires floating the cocktail, even though I am pretty sure that the clientele are not going to appreciate this entirely. I want to make a sun-dried tomato, orange, and lemon water that is thickened ever so slightly above the average density of vodka around 0.916. That's the density of vodka. That is true. Uh, whereas, you know, water is one and sugared water is higher than one. Uh, so it allows vodka, which is infused heavily with uh, manzanilla olive, I like the buttery flavor, to easily float above it, topped with a thyme oil. Uh, the thickening also serves as a textural contrast, as this pairing is a favorite pasta sauce from my family, and I thought the idea of pulling a straw up through the cocktail as you drank it would be a fun concept. So my question is, would xanthan gum or a lightly heated uh, gelan low acyl provide a better texture uh, to actually drink while giving the appropriate density to float an infused vodka, or do you have a better solution? Um, and this is not exactly radio talk, but I would happily set up a payment plan to purchase a Spinzol 
if that is something that could be set up before or after you reach your target goal, be it layaway or otherwise. I can't justify the cost for personal uh, to potential professional use at this time, but either way, uh, you guys are badasses for bringing such an invention to the market. And if it can do what it says, I can't see why any kitchen wouldn't find a use for it. As we say, Mm -hmm. verbal bravogram, yeah, from your lips to God's ears there. Um, (laughs) But uh, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. You know, we'll we'll see what happens in the future. If we get it funded and we actually have them in stock, then you know we have a lot more um, a lot more leeway. Now back yeah, flexibility, which is not a word Nastasia and I use very often. Flexibility. So compromise. What? <laughs> uh, so let's get back to our question. Uh, I wouldn't use xanthan. Xanthan thickened. Uh, like you could ever so slightly put xanthan in it, but xanthan has a very particular look to it, a feeling to it that I you know that's not so pleasant. Like uh, I mean, if you're going to do xanthan, you want to keep it well under a quarter of a percent. A low acyl fluid gel, I think, would be your best bet, but it has to be really, really light. Um, now. I'll have you know that uh, I happen to have, as I told you before, some tomato water sitting around in my fridge, and I took it out of the fridge and floated some vodka on top of it and just did it on the back of a bar spoon and was able to get a pretty good float. There was some mixing uh, along the line, but uh, you know, just a good old-fashioned Pousse Cafe technique was enough to float uh, vodka right on top of the tomato water. Um, Okay, so but if you want to thicken it because you want that textural difference, then I would do low acyl uh, gelan. Another thing you can do that doesn't jack the sugar appreciably and you don't want to drink too much of it, you give them the runs, is you could uh, hit it with a non-sweet uh, or a low-sweetness uh, sugared product like isomalt or something like that, but it will increase the sweetness. I've done densified cocktails uh, with that or with um, you know uh, low-DE um, uh, glucose syrup because it adds a boatload of density uh, and you're not actually thickening it, but you're just increasing the density of it, which is I think what you want to look at. If you actually want to thicken it, sure, go fluid gel. But if you just want to increase the density, uh, I would go with something like a low DE, like very almost unsweet, almost no sweetness, glucose syrup or um, something of that nature. But vodka will float directly on the top of tomato water. Uh, and of course, the oil float on that. You just have to be careful when you uh, pour it, right? That makes sense? Yeah? All right. Uh, and we're about to get kicked off the air. But uh, lastly, we had uh, we have nothing else we need to talk about, right? Uh, Anthony from Nashville writes in, Hey, Dave, I just wanted to shoot you a quick thanks for speaking out against sexual harassment in the hosp- uh, hospitality industry on the show two weeks ago. As a longtime kitchen worker, I've been witness to many acts of casual sexual harassment, sexism, and plain old bullying in the restaurant. Regretfully, I sometimes behave the same way in my ignorant youth, so I know how easy it is to not realize or understand that it's wrong. No one should ever be made to feel uncomfortable uh, like that, especially when they go to work. And I think you delivered that message right, quite clearly and effectively on the show. I know a lot of bonehead cooks who think that catcalling at the hostess and alcohol addiction are just fun parts of being in the pirate crew. A lot of these same guys, as well as many like them, I'm sure, are frequent listeners of cooking issues and hold you in high regard. So I think it's great that you can use this platform to spread a positive message that hopefully will touch some lives. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Anthony from Nashville. And he says, P.S. I would be super stoked if book two turns out to be the Miracle of Moisture Management, which I doubt it will be, uh, Anthony. I think I know what the next uh, book's going to be about. We could talk about it maybe next week on Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.